drug pricing and, and kind of big bad pharma generally makes for a good punching bag in the general election. You know, I think that again, that that's part of the positioning that we've seen on the executive order front from President Trump thus far. From remote offices in the New York tri-state area, welcome to No More, Risk Better, a Credit Sites podcast. This podcast offers conversations with our analysts to get their perspective and expertise on the global credit markets. If you're an investment professional that touches the wide universe of fixed income, you will want to give us a listen. We're living a surreal life right now, but our team of nearly 100 analysts continues to publish content to our more than 15,000 readers across global credit markets. I'm Christopher Snow, the moderator, and I'm here with Eric Axon, Senior Healthcare Analyst and our co-head of U.S. High Yield. Hi, Eric. Welcome. Hey, Chris. Thanks for having me. Great. Pharma is a popular topic now, as always, where it affects all Americans, and we have the election coming up. So before we dig in, uh, let's set some of the landscape for our listeners. U.S. consumers, whether through private insurance or Medicare, uh, pay some of the highest prices for drugs. Why is that? <laughs> so it's a, it's a tough question early on, but as you know, the drug pricing system in the U.S. is, is highly complex. So there's a lot of moving parts. There's a lot of competing motivations, but you know, at, at its most basic, what you have is, is consumers that are essentially almost entirely detached from the prices of the drugs that they consume. So that's, that's one part of it. If you look then within, you know, within the supply chain itself, say on the private side, you have drug makers on the one side that clearly benefit from high drug prices, particularly for drugs that are highly inelastic or have few alternatives on the market. But then you also have pharmacy benefit managers, which play the part of middlemen between the drug makers and the private insurers. Now, the PBMs, you know, one of their primary roles is to negotiate rebates and discounts on the behalf of private insurers. But that being said, the, the PBMs themselves can actually benefit from high drug prices as well, which, again, really speaks to, you know, misaligned incentives along the, the drug supply chain. You know, on the government side, Medicare Part D is the largest purchaser of drugs in the world. But the federal government isn't allowed to negotiate drug prices. The HHS is actually prohibited from interfering with negotiations between drug makers and drug plan sponsors. So instead, price negotiations on the government side happen in a piecemeal fashion. And I would say as a result of that, and I'm sure it's something we're going to touch on through this podcast, but lawmakers on both sides of the aisle are considering options which could allow the federal government to negotiate Medicare drug prices going forward. You know, all that's a long way of saying is that, you know, the, the system is highly complex. There's a lot of moving parts. There's a lot of inefficiencies and, and imperfections in the system that result in high drug prices, both on the private side and, and on the government side. Well, you know, let's dig into some of the recent activity there. And, and, and obviously that gives it a lot of fodder for being in the political sphere. Just recently, President Trump, who has an eye on the reelection and obviously a commitment to deal with drug pricing, you know, they've made some administrative actions to try to adjust that. Can you Talk us through the implications of those actions. Yes, yeah, sure, sure thing. So, you know, we've really seen a flurry of executive orders from the president in recent months. Back in July, the president signed three executive orders with regard to, to drug pricing in the U.S. You know, one of those orders pertained to, to drug reimportation, one related to, to safe harbor protections offered to PBMs. And then the third was an order that would allow for drug discounts to be passed along to low-income Americans. More recently, and, and, and far more impactful for the drug makers, though, the president signed a fourth executive order that would link the prices of drugs sold through Medicare Parts B and D to a most favored nation price, which in this context means the lowest price paid by a member country of the OECD with a comparable per capita GDP. Now, this was notable because it was the first time that we've seen the president 
include Part D, D is in David, uh, in a most favored nation order. And that's a considerably worse outcome for the drug makers given the size of that purchasing pool. You know, th that being said, and I think it's really important to underscore, is that, you know, a most favored nation policy is in unlikely to be implemented through an executive order alone. It it's our view that this type of order would need to be followed up with regulatory action. And it's also likely to face legal challenges and political opposition. You know, the leading pharma and biotech lobbies are already pushing back hard against these orders, but the fourth order in particular. You know, as it currently stands and kind of in the context of where we are in this election cycle, you know, we view these executive orders primarily as political positioning ahead of the upcoming presidential debates. Uh, again, there's little that we think can actually be implemented through executive order alone, but it's certainly something that, you know, as we see how the election shakes out, you know, th these are things that could be important for the sector in, in the years ahead, for sure. Well, it, the drug pricing generally captured the ire of, you know, much of America. It's something you often need in, in, in trying to understand pricing. It's difficult. We've gone through cycles of this to a certain degree. You know, where are we currently in that cycle of organic price increases? You know, we certainly saw in the aftermath of Valiant, now Bosch, of acquire assets and exploit drug pricing. You know, we've seen a bit more self-policing on pricing. What does that mean you know, for the business in terms of free cash flow? And, and what does that mean in terms of keeping you know, Congress or the political process out of the mix? Yeah, yeah, sure. So, you know, if you, if you flash back 2016, which obviously was our last presidential election, but that was really the height of pricing controversies in the pharma space. And, and through those controversies, there was a real light shown on aggressive pricing tactics, and particularly those that were tied to M&A. You know, the fact remains, if you flash forward to, to today, is that drug companies are still taking list price increases one to two times per year. But what they're doing is they're generally trying to stay below the plus 10% mark to avoid that political and public ire. You know, no one wants to get hauled in front of Congress, you know, even if what they're doing on the drug pricing front is legal. And the fact of the matter is, and you know, it's, it's less talked about than list price increases, but on a net basis, which is really what companies see on their income statements, pricing uh, on a portfolio basis is flat to modestly down for most companies in the investment grade pharma space. And then there's a few reasons for that. You know, a, a lot of it is attributable to successful actions on the part of the PBMs on the commercial side, in addition to, as you mentioned, self-policing on the part of the drug makers themselves. But what you're really seeing, you know, from the perspective of the drug makers is, you know, there's a pricing dynamic right now that a lot of it's coming through kind of the normal course of business on the commercial side. That's making, you know, revenue growth and EBITDA growth and, and free cash flow generation just more difficult to, to come by. And again, a lot of that has been driven from, from the PBM side and some consolidation that we've seen between PBMs and, and private insurers or, or amongst private insurers themselves. And what that really means is that in, in certain therapeutic areas, you know, diabetes is a big one. Cholesterol is another one. You know, we saw it with hepatitis C uh, and we're seeing it now in areas such as HIV and, and multiple sclerosis is that some actions on the PBM side have, have actually been successful in, in slowing down um, price increases or halting them altogether. So do you still see on the producer side of it, you know, so to speak, good players like, you know, maybe a J&J, &J, a Lilly versus what, you know, some extent have been the bad players, say Endo and Valiant, you know, are there still companies that you think are, are potentially offsides in, in terms of the, the, the exploitation of the, you know, some of those, so to speak, opportunities? 
Yeah, I mean, I think if you look at, you know, the quote unquote bad, the bad actors or the bad players, you know, the go- growth through M&A and or the R&D light business model that was employed by Valiant and Endo and Malincrot, you know, that, that business model is pretty much long gone at, at this stage. Now, in part, that was because those were the three biggest players that employed that business model and none of them have leverage that would allow for, you know, M&A activity at, at, at this time. But, you know, I think generally speaking, you know, the model of buying an asset and jacking the price of it where there's limited competition, you know, that model is really essentially gone away. Now, I'm not sure it's entirely gone away, but it's not a popular model in the space um, by any means at this point in time. You know, looking at kind of the universe as a whole, though, and, you know, kind of including your investment grade names and, and I guess you'd say your more reputable names in the space, there are certainly instances where drug makers continue to be aggressive with price increases. You know, I think that if you look at some of the innovative new launches, new drug launches where there's limited competition, you're still seeing, you know, even the big blue chip guys that will they'll take their shots to be aggressive and setting the price of new drugs. I think, you know, whether or not those companies are offsides really, you know, kind of depends on your perspective on it. And I'd also say that, you know, in terms of aggressive price action that's happened in recent, you know, in past years is that, you know, there are still companies that are accruing the benefit of that price action. It's not like, you know, Malincrot's Actar was a drug that, you know, prices, you know, rose dramatically over the last decade. It's not like the, the company's given back those price increases. So there's certainly some legacy price increases that remain in place. And I think that there are still some shots where, where companies will choose to be aggressive, where market conditions kind of allow for it. And that runs a gamut from high yield all the way up to, you know, AAA rated names like J&J. You know, ostensibly, you know, the governor on some of these prices is the, you know, the patent runway and when generics come into the market. But, you know, even there, we've seen some problems, price fixing. You know, what are the market forces driving that? And, and does that leave any of those majors unscathed, Mylan, Teva, Endo, et cetera? Yeah. So price fixing is a major issue in the generics space right now. You know, as you mentioned, really very few companies that, that play in generics are untouched by it. What we have right now is DOJ investigations into price fixing that have been going on for a number of years. It just recently, the DOJ has reached settlements with a number of the larger players. So Sandoz and, and Taro Pharma uh, were two of the big ones that have recently settled with the DOJ on price fixing. Uh, on the flip side of that, Teva was actually just indicted on price fixing charges. So that's going to be a high profile case that's making its way through the courts. You also have Mylan, who's yet to reach a settlement on price fixing. So you know, two big fish r- remain out there. I think just in terms of summarizing kind of exposure too, it's important to note that the DOJ is not the only source of exposure for price fixing in the space. There are civil suits from states and from private plaintiffs as well. So it's not like this is something that's going to go away anytime soon in the space. And we actually expect a somewhat regular cadence of, of settlements on the price fixing front uh, for, for the years to come. Uh, you know, the good news is that amounts settled with the DOJ, at least thus far, are manageable f- from a credit perspective. So, you know, I guess that's, you know, if there is to be good news to come out of this is that, you know, these companies can kind of, they can handle what's coming down the pike in terms of settlements. You know, I think that people certainly are a bit more anxious and have concern around, you know, Teva, given that they have a lot of legal exposure from other areas as well. But we ultimately expect that the price fixing settlements there to be manageable for, for Teva. You know, in terms of the market forces behind, you know, the price fixing and the wrongdoing, the, the generic space is just, it's important to know is it's highly price competitive. When you get a number of generics on market in terms of uh, FDA approval, you know, there's, there certainly is kind of a race to the bottom on price. And because of that, or at least partially because of that, it's an area where you know, size, scale, cost efficiencies, all those things really matter. So there's certainly a tangible benefit 
that can be derived from collusion. And, and it seems like, you know, at least based on the, the court documents that we've read, it seems like that companies perhaps tried to, to take advantage of that. Well, it's a tough topic to digest, and I, I guess we're over on those. Um, let me take a detour. And you know, right now, we're amidst COVID-19. It's an important topic for all of us. We see that there's a, an ongoing race with a half dozen or so participants looking to develop the vaccine. What does that mean for the pharma business? Yeah, you know, I, th- I think first and foremost, kind of maybe stepping back, is I think the efforts from the drug makers over really the last six months, you know, in the vaccine and the, in the treatment realm as it pertains to COVID has been a good thing for those companies from a public perception standpoint. You know, I think there's little doubt that they're in better standing. These companies are in better standing now with the general public and and even politicians. You know, whether that will influence, you know, any drug pricing proposals that come down the pike is is yet to be seen. Probably not. But at least for a sector that's generally beaten up in the public eye, that at least for this moment in time, public perception is better. In terms of where we stand with the vaccine, and, you know, there are currently, believe it or not, 40 vaccine candidates in clinical trials on humans right now. And there's another 90 or so in earlier stage trials. So there's a number of parties that are kind of racing to a vaccine here. You know, companies in the lead, you know, include names like Moderna, Pfizer, AstraZeneca, J&J. You know, they all look to have promising vaccine candidates in late stage trials. Uh, A number of them have also locked up large contracts with both the U.S. and, and European governments. So, you know, obviously that assumes that their vaccines are ultimately proven to be safe and effective. But really what we see then is that, you know, particularly on the governments, you know, in these government contracts, you know, the near-term benefit from delivering a vaccine will be lucrative. You know, we see a real revenue benefit for those companies that are early to market with a vaccine. Now, that being said, if you look over kind of a modestly longer time horizon, the next few years, we, we ultimately expect the market to see heavy saturation for a vaccine and for that to dampen the revenue and EBITDA benefit for any one company. But certainly in the near term, there's a real benefit to revenue, although we think that these vaccines will ultimately be low margin type products. Let's turn back to the politics side, you know, whether it's a tweet from the president or a policy paper from Challenger Biden, there's some volatility on security prices on the potential policy outcomes that are in front of us. What do you think of the election and how important is the Senate to that calculus? Yeah, sure. So, you know, election years are generally bumpy for the pharma sector. You know, this year is no different. You know, drug pricing and and kind of big bad pharma generally makes for a good punching bag in the general election. You know, I think that, again, that that's part of the positioning that we've seen on the executive order front from President Trump thus far. But if you look at, you know, the potential election outcomes, you know, on the one side, you have Trump, who has railed against high drug prices uh, a number of times throughout his presidency. But that said, there's actually been very little in terms of actual legislation that's altered the pharma landscape or the drug pricing landscape. So it's our view that kind of despite the, the recent executive orders, again, many of which will require legislation and regulation, you know, we still see Trump as the better outcome for pharma in this election cycle. You know, Biden, on the other hand, it could pose some real problems for the industry, you know, particularly if the Senate flips Democrat. You know, so despite Biden's stance as, as a moderate, a moderate Democrat, you know, his drug pricing proposal is actually pretty left leaning. Um, it includes things like Medicare negotiating authority direct price controls in the form of inflation caps, international price indexing. And some of these are, are pretty disruptive measures. As it pertains to the Senate, you know, if, you know, if Biden is, is elected and, and even if the Senate flips Democrat, he'll need to still need 60 votes to pass some of these more disruptive drug pricing measures. So, you know, there's still the thinking that bipartisan support would be required. Uh, and I'd also note that it would be bipartisan support in areas 
that have historically not garnered a lot of bipartisan support, although I think there's some evidence that the tide is shifting a bit there. But again, I think that the, the real point to underscore here is that you know a Biden win and, and the Senate flipping Democrat presents a real possibility of, of actual legislation uh, on the drug pricing front. So that's that's a real you know a, a real threat to to the industry at this time. I guess the, the hanging anvil there is uh, is Medicare, you know, since that's where the government presumably has you know, the greatest ability to affect drug pricing, as you mentioned earlier. You know, they're, they're the single largest purchaser of drugs, you know, globally. You know, what is the range of potential outcomes, and you know, where do you kind of base your investment thesis for the sector? Yeah, I think first just to underscore, you know, I think changes to Medicare certainly represent the biggest overhang uh, on the sector right now, particularly from an, from an operational perspective. I think it's important, though, to really underscore that, you know, what we're talking about here with regard to Medicare is a change in how the federal government reimburses drugs purchased through Part D and Part B, whether that be through a most favored nation provision or through direct negotiating authority. This would be a big kind of ground shift in in how the federal government reimburses drugs. The Medicare Modernization Act of 2003 stipulates that the HHS can't institute a price structure for the reimbursement of covered Part D drugs. So it's our view, again, that, you know, a change in law would be required and that any efforts to, to do so outside of legislation to affect change in, through Medicare outside of legislation could be blocked by the courts. As I mentioned earlier, you know, we see a greater chance of legislation under the Biden White House and the Democratic Senate. So what we've tried to do in terms of handicapping outcomes is to say, you know, under an outcome where Medicare drug prices change dramatically, you know, what are the companies that are most exposed? And, you know, there's a lot of unknowns as you start kind of peeling off the layers uh, of this onion. First of all, you don't really know where drug prices are going to go to from where they currently are. But so, you know, kind of to tackle exposure, you know, we take a few different routes. The problem from, you know, the bottoms up and the company, the company side is that disclosure is not great with regard to to exposure to, to government programs. But, you know, there are some companies that provide anecdotal color on exposure to Medicare. Th- that anecdotal color has been uh, a lot more prevalent in recent quarters, I think, as companies know that investors are focused on it. And then the other way to gauge exposure is to actually look at the Medicare dashboard for you know the largest drugs purchased by the federal government. And what you can do is use those two methods. So you know the Medicare dashboard being one, and and kind of the bottoms up you know anecdotal color from management teams being two. And you can start to kind of focus in on you know where is exposure and start to make some soft conclusions here. You know, looking at, at you know some of those soft conclusions that we've made. You know, one would be, you know, companies like Merck and J&J derive about 30% of their revenues from Medicare, which looks high in terms of exposure in the sector. You've got Bristol-Myers that's now combined with Celgene. They have two of the largest drugs purchased through Medicare in Eliquis and Revlimid. So that, that exposure looks high. You know, on the flip side, you've got names like Avi and Amgen that have seemingly less exposure um, to, to Medicare as a pair. But then the next layer of that onion is then, you know, company exposure is really highly nuanced. And I think, you know, a good example is, is Merck's Keytruda. So Keytruda is one of the, the, the top oncology drugs on the market at, at this time. It also happens to be where the majority of Merck's Medicare exposure is derived from. So is it plausible that the U.S. government could deny access to one of the best cancer drugs on the market if they kind of stall out on price negotiations with Merck? You know, obviously, that's a big question mark. But what I think it really speaks to is the political challenges. And it speaks to why Medicare negotiating authority has been something that's been viewed as a political third rail historically. And it's not a new concept. So I think it just really speaks to how difficult it will be and how disruptive it could be to change 
the Medicare reimbursement system as it currently stands. I think under a worst case outcome, and you talk about framing you know, outcomes here, but I think under a worst case legislative outcome, what we're looking at here is a revenue headwind that will certainly affect certain therapeutic areas within a portfolio more than others. I don't think it yet rises to the point where we see you know, material credit deterioration to the point that we could see downgrades driven by a legislative outcome. But what I think it could do is it makes growth harder to come by. And then that kind of spurs other activity and, and M&A being one of those activities as companies look to acquire perhaps in innovative areas that are more price insulated. Well, Eric, you started to touch on it a bit. And just to wrap up our podcast here, you know, drawing a straight line to for some of these considerations for credit quality is difficult. Um, you know, as you mentioned, you know, these companies are characterized by strong free cash flow and you know, it's the implications around MA and those types of things that often drive the investment thesis. But you know, that being said, you know, how, how have you organized some of your recommendations heading into the fall? Yeah, sure. You know, with the acknowledgement that, you know, political risk is just one, you know, one area of, of credit risk. You know, I think that it is important to underscore that you know drug pricing is you know most almost definitely the, the number one you know overhang from an operating per- perspective or, or at least potential headwind in the space. You know, so in that context, what we do is we take greater comfort in those names with strong diversification, and that's by both drug and by therapeutic area, particularly in the higher quality area of investment grade pharma. And the reason for that is just you know as I mentioned, pricing pressure, say from Medicare if it comes to pass, could really hammer one area of a portfolio or one or two therapeutic areas in a portfolio really hard. But if a company has good diversification, you know, the rest of their portfolio could remain relatively unscathed. And diversification is really one of the reasons that, you know, underscores our outperform recommendation on Merck. Another way that we kind of think about framing political risk and, and positioning it on it is, you know, we tend to favor names that operate in drug classes that would be really difficult for the federal government to restrict access to. So, you know, Bristol-Myers and Celgene, that combination, they, they have a large oncology portfolio. AbbVie has a large inflammation portfolio. In either of those areas, it would be very politically unpalatable for the government to play hardball and then potentially restrict access to, to those medicines. And then a third way that we play it is, you know, we favor generic players at this time. You know, so that's Myelin and it's Teva down in high yield land. You know, the push, you know, and it's, you know, there's been a widespread push for, for a number of years in the U.S. to lower healthcare costs. And that really plays to the favor of generics. And so in recent years, what you've seen is the FDA has prioritized the accelerated approval of generic medicines. Um, I think that that's going to continue. You know, on the flip side, you know, we think that, and as I mentioned, you know, we think pricing pressure could lead, lead to M&A as companies look to acquire their way into those price insulated areas on the innovative side. So areas like oncology and like inflammation. You know, it's not entirely related just to pricing risk, but, you know, we tend to dislike names that we see as having an obvious M&A need for one reason or another, you know, names like Gilead and even Biogen or names that have been just really vocal about M&A aspirations, you know, whether that be tied to pricing pressure or not, Eli Lilly kind of jumps up there. But, but that's, you know, that's the quick and dirty and how, how we think about um, positioning as it relates to, to political risk. Well, thanks, Eric. This has been really helpful to understand the political landscape and, and some of the strategic challenges in the pharma space. So really appreciate you taking the time. Yeah, thanks for having me, Chris. And thank you, listeners. As always, you can find our research on our website, creditsites.com. Or if you are not a subscriber, please contact us at sales at creditsites.com. Credit Sites Disclaimer. 
All price references correspond to the date of this recording. This podcast should not be copied, distributed, or produced in whole or in part. Neither credit sites nor its affiliates makes any representation or warranty as to the accuracy or completeness of any information complained in this podcast. Credit sites is not providing investment, legal, accounting, or tax advice, is not providing research or making any recommendations, nor is credit sites offering or soliciting any transaction with respect to the purchase or sale of any security. The receipt by the listener of this podcast is not the giving of advice by credit sites or its affiliates.